Well, hello, Eastview family. Thank you for having me back again. I know this was uh, unexpected, but I'm grateful to have an opportunity to open up the Word of God and uh, to teach again today. I'm grateful for the invitation from uh, the elder body and from your executive team uh, to be here with you again. Um, my name is Tommy Politz, and I'm from Texas, and I pastor a church there. And uh, I just want you to know that today I want to speak to you about something very, very specific, very, very unique when it comes to the concept or the idea of hope in the Bible, the idea of biblical hope. So I want to welcome everybody at all of our other campuses here, also those of you watching online. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Lord Jesus, I pray for deep spiritual movement this morning, that you would reframe how we see hope. I pray that not a single one of us would leave here today the same as when we walked in, that your word would saturate our hearts and that our souls and our minds would be reformed in the way that we think about hope according to your truth. For it's in Christ's strong and holy name we pray these things. Amen. Victor Frankl wrote a best-selling book called Man's Search for Meaning. Like many Jews from Germany and Eastern Europe, their hopes for a peaceful existence in the 1930s changed drastically Viktor Frankl found himself at a Nazi concentration camp called Auschwitz. And in the foreword of that book, he writes this about hope. He describes poignantly, poignantly that those prisoners that had given up on life, those who had lost all hope for a future, were inevitably the first ones to die. They died less from lack of food or medicine than from lack of hope. Lack of something to live for, he writes. By contrast, Viktor Frankl said that he kept himself alive and he kept hope alive by summoning up thoughts of his wife at Auschwitz and the prospect of seeing her again. Now Eastview, as Christians, we have every reason for hope. The Lord himself in John 14 said, I will return for you again. Jesus has promised his second coming. Meaning that because the Bible says God is who he says he is and God's gonna do exactly what he says he's gonna do, that is God is who he says he is and God is gonna do exactly what he says he's going to do. When Jesus says in John 14 to the disciples that night, which I believe was at the foot washing, the Lord's Supper, I believe it's the night that he gets arrested. It's the night before Good Friday. I think John's gospel, chapters 13 through 17, all take place, that farewell discourse, that farewell sermon takes place that night on Thursday night before Christ would be crucified on Friday. And when Jesus washes their feet and he promises them in that farewell discourse or farewell sermon, he says to them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back to take you with me where I am so that you may be with me also. If it were not so, 
I would have told you. I wouldn't have said it this way. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't lie. Of course, we know the Bible says God cannot lie. He will not lie. He does not lie. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is true. He is coming again. And every Christian has that hope and that great reason to hope. But we don't always feel hopeful. Sometimes we feel a sense of despair, despondency, depression, loneliness, anxiety, and we feel hopelessness choking us out. This is a lot like I think the psalmist must have felt when he wrote in Psalm 42, five, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then what? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. It's the psalmist telling us, why does my soul feel so downcast? Why do I feel down? Why do I feel depressed? Why do I feel despondency? Why such despair? Why am I not at peace in my interior castle of my life and I'm disturbed within? And the answer is we gotta put our hope in God. We gotta keep our face positioned properly towards the author and perfecter of our faith. For I will then praise my savior and my God. The apostle Paul made it clear in Colossians 1:27. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What mystery is that? The greatest mystery ever, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you realize that the reason that we can say, even as we are down, even if there is difficulty, even when there is struggle, even if something feels more difficult than we anticipated, do you realize that what the psalmist is saying, according to what Paul is saying, is that we have the true future glory to long for? That is that Christ in you, Christ in me is the hope of glory. Now, what do we mean by that? The Bible teaches that any single person who admits that they're a sinner, repents from their sins, turns away from their sins and turns toward God, does a U-turn. That's what repentance means. Repentance literally means that the Greek idea in the word there is a change of mind. That is, we're heading towards sin. We turn away from sin. We turn back towards God. We do a U-turn. This is to repent. If we bend a knee before the cross of Christ and we thank him for his body and his shed blood for us, we receive him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says that we not only become brand new creatures, new creations, but the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of the Lord, our counselor, he then what takes up residence in us. And as he takes up residence in us, we have an indwelling, we have a baptism of the Spirit, an indwelling of the Spirit, a fill, multiple fillings in the, our Christian life uh, of the Spirit of different frequencies and intensities for the service to the Lord and to bring glory. But we have Christ in us, that great hope of glory. When I think about that, that's the hope that we, we have, I think about Christ's words, John 14, 16 and 17, on that same night, listen to what Jesus said. He said, I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. He lives with you and will be in you. 
I've come from Texas to remind all of us that are brothers and sisters in Christ that the spirit of Christ is with you and in you. He's with you and he is in you and he made this promise and he says, and I will come back again. So no matter what we may face, we can have that true idea of biblical hope extended to us because he is with us and in us. In 1999, my wife and I moved from Dallas, Texas, where I had grown up in the Dallas area. We moved to North Atlanta to plant a church. Our kids were very young. We planted a church in the Alpharetta area there in the North Atlanta uh, uh, region. And uh, the church grew and grew and grew. And I added some staff members as the founding senior pastor. One of the guys' name was Stephen Gibbs. He was our teaching pastor and small groups pastor. Now to this day, he actually followed me after I left there and went back to Texas uh, to pastor. Uh, Stephen is the senior pastor there at Stone Creek to this very day. But but we, we were having a Big, big day one day. And after the end of the service, we said, hey, tonight, let's take our families and let's go out to eat. We wanted to go to a new restaurant that was in town. It was packed all the time. You couldn't get in. It was Jason's Deli. Now, <laughs> that may not seem like much, but when you have a brand new Jason's and, and no one else has you know, been eating at Jason's, it just was packed for weeks and weeks. We're like, it's been open enough weeks. Let's go. Well, it was a Sunday night. It was dreary, cold, it was winter time, and uh, Stephen and Debbie Gibbs had four children. So it was the Gibbs six and the Pollitz five, me and Don and our three children. The 11 of us got together, we headed to the restaurant. When we pulled in, sure enough, parking lot was packed. You could tell the restaurant was packed. As we got out of the car and we were heading up to the restaurant, I was holding my daughter, Rebecca, uh, who was about four or five years old at the time. She's now 25, married, and has uh, my only grandchild, uh, Milo. And, uh, but, but Rebecca was about four or five years old. I'm holding her on my hip, and we're walking towards the, the restaurant, and she says, Daddy, I don't feel so good. And I said, baby, what's wrong? She says, my tummy, my tummy, my stomach. I was like, okay, well, we'll just get in here real, real quick. We'll find somewhere and get seated. Well, we get in there and the line is all the way packed with both registers, every table. I mean, they got those tables jammed in there. Every table is taken. So we come up with a plan. Stephen and I tell Donna and Debbie, we say, why don't y'all order the food for everybody? And Steve and I will take the kids and we will, we're gonna be like table hunters. We're waiting for someone to get up and there is no, oh, don't worry, you were here first. We just lose all Christ-likeness in that moment. <laughs> We're ready for a table. We're ready to eat. And so we start heading towards uh, looking for the, these tables. And I see a couple get up in the middle of the restaurant and, and uh, there's going to be this empty table, this family that's leaving. And so I start weaving between the tables. And uh, Rebecca says again, Daddy, I don't feel so good. And I turned to look at her. I said, what's wrong and when I turned and said, what's wrong? She threw up in my face, <laughs> in my mouth, all over me. Now, I want to tell you, it wasn't just one projectile. You know, when someone gets really sick, it was over and over and over. I was standing there in the middle of Jason's and it was drenched. Now, what do you do in a moment like that? You just duh, drop her and disgusting and let her <laughs> flop around down in it. Or do you do like any loving parent would do? You just, I naturally just reacted. I pulled her in closer and I rubbed her back and I said, oh baby, I'm so sorry. As she kept throwing up all over my shoulder and down my back. Just baby, I'm so, so, so sorry. Now, it was 
a very biblical moment because the crowd parted like the Red Sea. <laughs> People were running for the exit. Virus! Vomitgeddon! Vomitgeddon! I turn around as I'm holding my daughter and my wife comes up and she's looking at me. Her eyes are big. She finally comes up and she's just looking and she gives me that look that I'm very familiar with. She didn't have to say a word. It was clear. Bless your heart was the look that she had given. And she said, you got to go clean up. And I said, honey, there is no cleaning this up. She said, no, no, you got to go to the bathroom and clean up. I said, honey, unless there's a car wash next door and you got a few bucks, I'm going to walk through that thing instead of drive through it. I am not cleaning this up. And as soon as she had said that, my daughter said, no, daddy, don't leave me. Stay with me. So I just rubbed back and said, oh, baby, I'm not leaving you. We bonded for life. You threw up in my mouth. You're my girl. You're my peeps forever. We tight. You know what I'm saying? No, daddy, don't leave me. Stay with me. Eastview, your Abba, Daddy, Father, Almighty God is with you and his spirit is in you and he is who he says he is. And he's going to do what he says he's going to do. The question is, do you stake all of your hope on that? I mean, every fiber and every square inch of who you are, do you trust that the Lord is with you and he is in you? Because there's a major difference between hope as wishful thinking and hope as expectant believing. There is a major distinction between these two things. One of them is forms that aren't really saturated within the context of the promises of Scripture. When the Bible says that all promises, no matter how many God has made, are yes and amen in Jesus Christ from the Corinthian correspondence, what this means is he is who he says he is. He's going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. So do we put our hope in that kind of expectant believing? See, hope is wishful thinking is this, something good that you would like to have happen something good that you would like to have happen. That's what that is. Hope as expectant believing is something good that you know is going to happen. Do you see the difference? Hope as wishful thinking, something good that I would like to have happen. I desire for that to have happen. Hope as expectant believing is what the Bible teaches, the hope that we have in God, something good that you know is going to happen. The distinction is you have the hoper, the one doing the hoping, the process of the hoping, the object or future outcome hoped for, and then the personal integrity of whatever hope there is as object, what is that hope's grounding? What's the grounding of that hope? Because that's the difference maker. There's a lot of hopes that are dashed. They're dashed hopes. They're unfulfilled hopes. They don't really end up terminating in reality. Reality doesn't change for us. They don't line up, but not when it comes to what God promises us. Now, all of us at some point have lost hope. That feeling you get when despair overrides joy, 
when fear eliminates your faith, when anxiety replaces prayer, insecurity destroys confidence, and uncertainty liquidates hope. All of us, me, I'll speak for me. I, Tommy Pulitz, have had moments where I am discouraged and I experience the pain of hopelessness and I feel like I have lost hope and it's easy to lose hope. When you get a difficult diagnosis and the doctor tells you to get your affairs in order, August of 2005, when I found out I had malignant melanoma and I thought, I'm in my 30s. How long will I have? Obviously, I'm standing here before you. I don't need to fill in the rest of that gracious story of the Lord. But not everyone that I've pastored has had that same story. When you're a business leader and sales are in decline, when you're married and you can't seem to stop fighting, when you lose a job and you can't get an interview for another one, when you're living paycheck to paycheck and the transmission and refrigerator go out at the same time, when you're lonely and you can't find genuine community and friendship, when you're a coach and you can't seem to win enough, when you're a widow or widower and your spouse dies un, has died unexpectedly, when you're alienated from those you love, when you're powerless to bring about justice, when you're a college student and your grades come back, 1.9. When you're that same college student and your parents ask to see your grades. <laughs> when you watch cable news, all hope is gone. Can I get an Amen. When you're a kid and you realize you're not going to be an NFL quarterback, you're not going to be an NBA point guard or a major league baseball pitcher or a virtuoso violinist. I was eating lunch not too long ago and a family was sitting at a table and this little boy uh, asked his sister very clearly, just, she, he just said, he says, is Spider-Man and Superman real? And I overheard it. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cute. Kids got some subject verb agreement issues, but that's cute, right? He said, is Spider-Man, is Superman real? And his sister said, yes. And then the mom said, don't you lie to him. You tell him the truth. No, they're not. And that little boy's reaction, his head dropped, his lower lip jutted out, his shoulders hunched forward. And he said, oh man, to know that hope for him I mean, you know what hope is for a little boy who watches Spider-Man is that this is real, that this could, somehow could incorporate who he is. It's the dynamic of heroism, right? And, and the layering and mapping of his own life over it to where, you know, he, just like any little boy, you come out of the theater and what did he do after he saw Spider-Man? He's like, Phew, Phew. he sees his sister, Phew, right? And, and that's what you do. I remember in 1976, I was nine years old. My parents took me to see Rocky and oh my goodness, Rocky Balboa. 1976, you just came out of the theater and you were like, <laughs> I mean, you were ready, right? I was probably 42 pounds soaking wet, but I thought I could tear up the world, right? I'd see Clint Eastwood in one of those great Westerns and I'd get behind the house in Mesquite, Texas, a suburb there in Dallas, and I'd pull out my plastic six shooters and, you know, I was ready to see my brother and I was like, and I just, as soon as he walked around the corner, right, it's this envisioning of something bigger or, or, or greater. But, it, you know, then the reality sets in. And, and you see that, re now, it's not just, listen, it's not just kids that feel that way after movies, is it? Even adults. I mean, even after I saw Spider-Man, I thought, man, that'd be cool. Someone falls asleep during my sermon. <laughs> be pretty amazing, right? Somebody cuts me off in traffic. 
I mean, it'd be, it'd be awesome. Someone in, a, in, our, in, in my congregation, they yell at, you know, Oklahoma Sooner fan yells out, Boomer, you know, because they'd love Oklahoma. And I'm not an Oklahoma fan. That is like, you know, our rivals big times, you know, they Boomer. And it'd just be great to just be like, just give it, give it all to them, right? Whether you're a kid or an adult, whether it's something lighthearted or something as serious as the Apostle Paul who says, I feel like I'm facing death itself and I've lost hope. To feel hopeless is no discrimination towards age. Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I want you to notice this, the first thing, it's confidence in what we hope for. What do you mean? How do you have confidence in what you hope for? It's because it's it's grounding is God's word and God's personal integrity and character. And it's assurance about what we do not see. So even when you don't see the outcome, even when you can't see the circumstances or how it's gonna turn out, you see, hope is wishful thinking descends into pessimism. Kind of like the well-worn saying, hope is wishing for something you know isn't going to happen. Not with biblical hope, it's different. If depression is linked to hopelessness, then vitality is linked to expectant believing in a God who is who he says he is and will do what he says he's gonna do. So what do you do with this? When you can't change your circumstances, you have to change your mindset. If I can't change my circumstances, I must change my mindset. Why? Because that's exactly what the Bible tells me to do. I want us now to unpack expositionally an Old Testament passage, and then I want us to see how the Apostle Paul applies this biblical principle in his life in the midst of despair and hopelessness. Lamentations chapter three in the Old Testament, starting in verse 17. We're gonna go 17 through 25. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. That's what hopelessness feels like, doesn't it? So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. All that I had hoped from the Lord. It's gone. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Now you can cross-reference Psalm 42.5 that we already opened up with. Why is my soul downcast? Because I feel like I've lost hope. So I've entered into despair, depression, maybe even sleeplessness. All that I hope from for the Lord is gone. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind. What happens? He's saying, doesn't matter what my circumstances are. I got to change my mindset. I've got to shift my perspective and I've got to call something to mind. And yet this I call to mind. And therefore I say it out loud with me, have hope. You want to have hope, Eastview? If I want to have hope, we need a mindset shift and we need to call to mind what we're going to see right here in this scripture. Three things. These things I call to mind and therefore I have hope 
And what are those things? Notice this. He says here in the text, verse 22, I call this to mind and I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. You say, because of God's great love, I am not consumed. For his compassions never fail. There is unending compassion with Almighty God. His mercies are new every morning. Verse 23, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's not just his great love, it's his compassions, it's his faithfulness. So I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Notice the three things here. This is huge. Number one, God's great love that protects me. Number two, God's compassion that never fails me. And three, God's faithfulness that upholds me. God's great love will protect you. He is with you and in you. God's compassion will not fail you. You may think he is failing you, but it is just a matter of our perspective. It is our matter of our not seeing the whole. And God's faithfulness that upholds me. See, what we see in the Bible here, verse 25, the conclusion, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. Question, where is your genuine hope? What, are you putting your hope in circumstances? Are you putting your hope in a promotion? Are you putting your hope in, in your marriage? Are you putting your hope in a, a growing business? Are you putting your hope in the future success of your kids and you're living vicariously through them? Are you putting your hope in a good report? Are, are you putting your hope in a person, another human being? Our hope is to be in God and to the one then who seeks him. This is where we will find this great hope. Now, Scripture describes hope as expectant believing and not as wishful thinking. There's a big distinction. Again, wishful thinking is something I desire to happen, but it may not necessarily happen. I personally hope the Baylor Bears win another national championship here in March Madness. I went to undergrad at Baylor. I love watching. We won two years ago in 2021. Things are not looking very good right now, but we're in the tournament. We'll see what happens. We haven't been playing very well yet, but I can say I hope Baylor wins a national championship. That's just wishful thinking. That's all that is. But if I say to you, I hope there's more to this life than just what I'm experiencing, and I turn to the Bible and I say, oh, but there is, and it is in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Now I've moved to an expectant believing of everything that he has promised. That is, now I'm assured of even things that I cannot see because I put all my hope in the personal integrity of the grounding of that hope in God himself. Scripture describes this as expectant believing and not wishful thinking. What does it mean to lose hope? Today's title of the message is to lose hope and to choose hope. Losing hope and choosing hope is the title of the message. You know, the, 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 what we want to do is ask ourselves, what does it mean to lose hope and wishful thinking and choose hope and expectant believing? It means Lamentations 3.21 that we just read. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What are you calling to mind in your individual life when you're facing uncertainty and despair, struggles, obstacles, 
when you're depressed, when you're lonely, when you're isolated? What do you call to mind when you have a big decision at work and it's eating and gnawing at your heart? If you're a leader of a team, what, what are you calling to mind individually? Eastview, what are you calling to mind corporately right now? As, as, as you move through a new season, what are you calling to mind? The Apostle Paul, when he thought death was on his doorstep, took the very advice of the psalmist in Psalm 42, 5, why am I downcast? Why am I distraught? Why do I feel this way? And what is he? So he put his hope in the Lord and of lamentations. He called to mind specific things. In fact, three powerful things that if every day I call to mind that these three truths about who God is and what God is going to do, my day is completely different. My day is reordered and not just in my heart and mind, but in my steps. Now, the apostle Paul told us he's been shipwrecked, he's been beat, he's been flogged, he's been starved, he's been falsely accused, he's been beat with a cat of nine tails, which would have been a whip with a bunch of little shards of like maybe metal or, or broken pottery or rocks, like scraps of metal or something, and they'd rake it over the skin, right? He had been lashed. And Paul suffered greatly for all of his preaching of the gospel uh, throughout the Middle East and throughout what we would consider to be, uh, for our area, we would call Turkey, uh, Galatia, and, and, and Ephesus, which is now modern-day Turkey. Back then, that province uh, on the east side, which is Istanbul, which was what would have been in ancient times was Ephesus, was called Asia. And the province of Asia, he says, he despaired of life itself and, and, and he thought that he had received the sentence of death. Paul was scared that he was gonna die for his faith for preaching the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter one, verse seven and following. Here's what he says. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Our hope is what? It's firm. How is it firm? Because I know that you share in our sufferings. Well, how are we have hope in our sufferings? Because we know comfort is on the horizon. Verse eight, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia, which again was most likely Ephesus. If you read the book of Acts, I think it's around the 19th chapter. The context seems to be that they've run into some trouble in what would be considered back then Asia. And uh, today, again, it would be Istanbul or Turkey, uh, but that was ancient Ephesus. And he says this, he says, we were under great pressure, you ever felt like you're under great pressure? Like, yeah, right now I feel I'm under great pressure. Personally, maritally, financially, vocationally, spiritually, communally, all kinds of pressures that we all face. I mean, let's just look at the world right now. The geopolitical situation, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stress out there. We were under great pressure this is a different kind of pressure when you're being beat for your faith. You want to talk about hard times in the church. You preach the gospel, they beat you, they starve you out. The book of Hebrews, they saw you in two, they cut you in half, they feed you to the lions, they burn you at the stake, right? I mean, it's just different. So we were under great pressure far beyond our 
ability to endure. Paul says, we couldn't take it anymore. I just wanted to quit. I didn't think I could take it any longer. So that we despaired of life itself. He thought he was going to lose his life. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Now, this is subjective and most likely not meaning a literal sentence handed down by some magistrate, but it's a perceived imagined threat that was so grave that Paul saw his circumstances as hopeless. And from his perspective, there's just no escape. We're done. Paul would say, I've come to the bottom of me and there is nothing left. That's hopelessness. Paul had run into a brick wall. All seemed lost and hopelessness was taunting him. But what does Paul call to mind? Lamentations 3.21. What is his mindset shift about what expectant belief and what is yet to come that he knows will come? What does Paul call to mind in order to have hope or expectant believing? 2 Corinthians 1.9, we continue in our passage. But this happened. What happened? <laughs> Great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, that we despaired of life itself. I thought I had received a death sentence. But all this happened, verse 9, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. A severe crisis like Paul's brush with death has a way of putting our life, our limited resources into perspective, doesn't it? Paul says we can no longer trust in ourselves. Eastview, have you, have you come to the bottom of yourself where you can't trust in yourself and all you have is to cry out to a holy God? In thee and thee alone I put my trust. Paul believes that one of God's purpose for us is when we sink in despair and affliction and hopelessness is to teach us divine dependence. See, that's what I think God does. My circumstances don't change. My mindset changes and God pours out a sense, a deep urgency of divine dependence on him. I can't depend on me. I can't trust me anyway. You know, it's really interesting. Trust produces hope. When you have hopelessness, there's a crisis of trust. And if we have a crisis of trust in God, that he is who he says he is, that he'll do exactly what he says he's going to do. So when Jesus says, don't worry, it all is going to end well. I will be coming back for you. Do you believe it with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind? Do you believe that that's the, the story in the culmination of reality. So what happens? Paul, in his dependence, realizes this is all he has. So here's what Paul calls to mind, first and foremost, when he says that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says, God will do what I cannot do. First thing you call to mind, you want hope? God's gonna do what I can't do. Period, end of story. I don't even have to try to force the issue. He's saying that the edges and margins of death causes humanity to reach new territory where self-confidence and self-reliance don't bring forth hope. You, it's new territory. You're a trailblazer. Now you're at the bottom of yourself and you realize I have limits to me. 
And the only thing I have is false hope in and through me. And my self-confidence and self-reliance isn't going to cut it. So I shall rely on God and God alone. You know, false hope is anyone or anything other than God. That's what it is. Placing your trust in anyone or anything other than God. That's just false hope. And it'll lead to despair every time has in my life. Paul is declaring that self-reliance doesn't bring comfort, security, or confidence. It doesn't. Only the one who raises the dead can do this for us, according to the text. He's the only one who has the power and the grounding to control reality. He is sovereign over all, and so we can trust in him. Do you know that in Jewish thinking, this is fascinating, I found in my research, in Jewish thinking, according to the Old Testament, it was commonplace that only God's hand has the three keys. You know, when Jesus says all keys of the kingdom, all keys, all authority has been granted to me by the Father and I have the keys to the kingdom. You hear that expression. Literally in in Judaism, the idea is that there were three keys always controlled by God that could never be delegated to another agent as viceroy. What, What do we mean by that? The keys to make it rain, the key to make to open the womb, and the key to raise the dead. In other words, only God can make it rain. And every farmer says, that is the truth, right? Especially where I'm from. And only God has the key to reproduce life, to the womb, to reproduction, to fruit. He giveth and he taketh, and only God can raise the dead. And that is exactly what Paul stakes his argument on. I no longer could rely on myself. I only relied on God because after all, isn't he the one who raises the dead? Letting go of self-reliance means you let go of your despair. You want to let go of despair and hopelessness? Let go of your self-reliance. 2 Corinthians 1.9 goes on though, and it says, but it's he who raises the dead. Paul was spiritually stripped naked through this particular circumstantial trauma, leaving him bare to the core of his self-confidence. A great shift was on. He would put his trust and confidence in God instead of himself. Why? Because Paul would say, because God can raise the dead and I can't. And if God is the one who can raise the dead, then there's my hope in life. Verse 10, the next verse, it also says he has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. He has delivered us and notice this, and he will deliver us again. Notice Paul is not using hope as wishful thinking as in I hope God will deliver us. He's using hope as expectant believing. I know God will deliver us. You know what he's calling to mind here? The second thing, God rescued me in the past, so he'll rescue me in the future. God's had you in the past. Let me ask it this way. Has God had you in the past, Eastview? Does he not have your future unto his glory? 1 Samuel 17, 37, when young David was going out as a young teenager and ruddy and, and going out to fight Goliath, Saul, King Saul didn't believe in him. His own bro- older brothers, his brothers didn't believe in him. Uh, heck, nobody believed him. The nation didn't believe in him that he could take on Goliath. Even Goliath, when he comes out to him, he says, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? 
First Samuel 17, 37, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. King David knew that God had rescued him in the past and he'll continue to be there for him in the future. You call to mind, number one, very clearly say, God will do what I cannot do. And then God will, number two, God rescued me in the past, so he will rescue me in the future. All of a sudden, light starts shining all around, a lot less despair. Then he goes on, verse 10, he adds one more thing. He says, and on him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Now notice this. This is the whole point in our hope series. We have set our hope, what? That he will continue to do what he's already doing. Meaning now I have total, complete confidence of what? Of how the story ends. The third thing Paul calls to mind is God has already told me how the story ends. Jesus already told us how it ends. He's coming back for his church. The second coming, the second advent, the second Christmas of Jesus Christ will be, he will return bodily, he'll return visibly, he'll return unexpectedly, he will return triumphantly, victoriously, he will return judiciously, but he will return because he is who he says he is. And he's going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. And you and I know how the story ends. I have a really good friend back home. And whenever we're going through it, sometimes I'll say to him, sometimes he'll say to me, hey, keep your head up. You know how the story ends. That's all we say to each other. Call to mind what? I have hope. Doesn't matter what I face in this life. I know how the story ends. And the best countermeasure to fear is hope. And that grand meta narrative is that hope hinges on Christ who raises the dead. Period. End of story. So I guess I come here from Texas to say to you, what do you keep in mind when you're in despair and feeling hopeless? I want to encourage you to call to mind what the Apostle Paul called to mind and choose hope in Christ. God will do, God will do what you and I cannot do, number one. Number two, God rescued you and me in the past. He'll continue to do that same work in the future. And God has already told us through his word how the story ends. So therefore, we shall have hope as expectant believing. Heavenly Father, I pray for the people of Eastview. I thank you for the privilege of being here with them today. I pray your holy word would take root in all of our hearts as we worship you, as we celebrate baptisms and change life. May you fill us with your spirit. May we be mindful of just one thing. You are with us and in us. You are with us and in us. And we give you all glory. You, Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, you in us, you are our hope of glory for our eternal future. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.